You know, I've still got a few of my old college textbooks, and it turns out that they could become relics. Some professors and students are selecting digital versions of books that can be read off a computer screen, and one college in Missouri is the first trying to go entirely book-free. Sylvia Maria Gross from Ember Station KCUR paid a visit. Most college students are used to going online for music, videos, and news. So why not textbooks? At Northwest Missouri State, all students are issued a laptop when they arrive on campus. Just before his business finance class begins, junior Kevin Green takes out his laptop and clicks on his textbook. I've read it some. I find it easy to just go through it as he discusses it in class, highlight things as he brings them up. Green is one of 500 students testing out digital textbooks this semester, and they're wondering how they'll change the way they study. Freshman Lindsay Ruport is just downloading her text for intercultural communications. I like having the book in front of me, so I can like flip back and forth really fast and like put post-it notes up in the corners of important pages. Some e-textbooks are just on-screen versions of the bound copies, but the new books are interactive. You can search, mark pages, highlight, and cut and paste passages. Even share notes in a kind of social network with the rest of your class, or click on a video. Riding upon a semi-plastic layer of Earth's fiery interior, the ocean floors and continents that form its crust or lithosphere are in continuing motion. The new generation of textbooks is trying to be in tune with the way students learn in the age of Wikipedia and YouTube, and textbook writers will have to keep up, according to Frank Lyman. He works at CourseSmart, a digital distributor that's working with nine major publishers. Now, what you're looking for in an author is a Steven Spielberg. You're looking for somebody who can be the producer, have the vision for what the learning experience should be. Not everyone is ready to relinquish the heavy old tomes. Northwest Missouri State President Dean Hubbard says when he discussed the plans to move away from physical books on campus, some professors had tears in their eyes. And the philosophy professor talked about books that were so important to him that he took them and had them leather bound. But then he ended up saying, this is the way things are going, and we're going to go with it. Professors across the country are signing e-books. 18% of college students have purchased them, according to the National Association of College Stores. But Northwest Missouri State is in a unique position to go entirely digital. In addition to the laptops, students rent all their textbooks from the college. So when a comprehensive selection became available digitally, President Hubbard decided to make the switch. The timing is just right. Everybody is anxious about the cost of higher education going up. College textbooks are part of that. One book can cost upwards of two hundred dollars. Ebook versions cost about half that. Some students still need convincing, though. About half at this school say they still prefer physical textbooks. But human resources instructor Allison Strong says she's already noticing students are more likely to bring their laptops than textbooks to class. I just remind them again, you know, review this chapter probably more so than I did before because I think they're actually going to read it more this time. As students trade their books for laptops, publishers and academics alike are watching the transition, which could have profound changes on higher education. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Maria Gross in Kansas City. Some engineers are working on another mystery. These engineers are at Columbia University in New York, and they want to know how well the cables 
on suspension bridges are holding up. They're working on what they hope will be a more accurate way of telling when a failure is imminent. Their study is relevant for bridges anywhere in the world, but this project has particular importance to people in New York. And Pierre's Joe Palka has our report. There are ten suspension bridges in the greater New York City area. There's the Bear Mountain Bridge, the Mid Hudson Bridge, the Triborough Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge, the George Washington Bridge, the Frog's Neck Bridge, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, the Verrazano Bridge. And of course, the granddaddy of them all, the one I'm standing on now, the Brooklyn Bridge. These bridges were all built to last, but none of them will last forever. How long they'll last is a question they're trying to answer about eight miles north of the Brooklyn Bridge, in a cavernous room on the campus of Columbia University. The uniqueness of these bridges is that some of them are over 100 years old. That's Raimondo Betti. He's a professor of civil engineering and engineering mechanics at Columbia University. Betti is in charge of the program to build and test a new sensor system that will measure the health of bridge cables. One of the problems that these bridges have is that, that there is uh, corrosion inside this cable. And so the question uh, arises, what is the strength of the cables after 100 years of service? Most suspension bridges share the same basic design. Giant cables are strung between two towers and are anchored to the shore on either side. A roadway is suspended below the cables. The cables themselves are bundles of thousands of thick steel strands. Right now, cables are inspected visually once or twice a year. That's okay, but obviously a rapidly developing problem can be missed. Raimondo Betti's idea is to embed tiny sensors inside the cable bundles to track the cable's condition round the clock. Now, it's one thing to put a sensor inside a cable. It's another to know whether it's giving you reliable information. So Betti and his colleagues have built themselves a large glass-walled chamber, and inside they've put a 20-foot length of bridge cable with their sensors embedded in it. It's an exact replica of a 20-inch diameter cable. Mm -hmm. Now, the Williamsburg Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, those are bridges that have similar size. Over the next six months, they'll record data from the sensors as they bake the cable with heat lamps and douse it with water, the kinds of things a New York bridge cable might be exposed to. We are trying to create conditions that are more aggressive than the one out there because otherwise the system will not be tested. And uh, six months from now, we'll open the cable. Open the cable and see how well the data they recorded matched the actual damage to the cable. Of course, even if Betty's sensor system works as he hopes, it doesn't solve the problem of what to do if a cable on a bridge connecting, say, Brooklyn and Manhattan is showing dangerous signs of weakness. It's impossible to replace a bridge like that in a densely populated area like New York City. You don't have the luxury of saying, I'm closing a bridge, and for five years, the traffic will go somewhere else. It will take some clever engineering and a lot of money to replace a cable. The new sensor system could let them know when that's absolutely necessary. Joe Palka, NPR News.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Michelle Norris. The next time you find yourself online and bored, type in www.blueservo.net. That's B-L-U-E-S-E-R-V-O dot net. There, you can pass the hours as a virtual Border Patrol agent. In a controversial new program aimed at enhancing border security, Texas sheriffs have put up a series of surveillance cameras along the Rio Grande, and they've connected them to the Internet. NPR's John Burnett has our story. Robert Ferencamp is a truck driver in South Texas. After a long haul behind the wheel of a Peterbilt tractor trailer, he'll come home, set his six foot six, two hundred and fifty pound frame in front of his computer, pop a red bull, turn on some Black Sabbath or Steppenwolf, log in, and start protecting his country. Certain locations I like to stay focused at, and I'll sit there for hours watching that one spot. Don't you get but bored? Yeah, well, not really. I don't need a lot of entertainment in my life. I'm just a single person and I'm just content being by myself and this and that so it, it finds just kind of gives me the little edge of feeling like I'm doing something for law enforcement as well as for our own country. Online border patrolling is about as sexy as real life police work. Hours of tedium punctuated by minutes of high excitement. On Blue Servo's website, each camera focuses on an area that's known for illegal crossings. A real-time view of a grassy meadow bears the message Look for individuals on foot carrying backpacks. A shot of a border highway says, If you see movement from the right to the left, please report this activity. Don Ray runs the Border Watch program. On camera 538, during the day, if you see four or five young men in a boat, report this activity. At night, if you see a vehicle, boat, or people movement, report this activity. Now wait, what if there are four or five young men that are out fishing in a boat? We'll be able to tell that pretty quickly. And if we are, we don't bother them. Ray is a former U.S. Customs agent who's executive director of the Texas Border Sheriff's Coalition. When a citizen spots suspicious activity, they click a button on the website, write a report, and that message goes to the corresponding sheriff's office, which may handle the problem itself or call the U.S. Border Patrol. To date, more than 43,000 people have signed up at BlueServo.net to become Virtual Texas Deputies, as the website calls them. Most are in Texas, though some are far from the Mexican border. There were a group of folks who sent an email into the server that said, uh, in good Australian fashion, Hey, mate, we've been watching your border for you from the pub in, in Australia. The program, funded by the Texas Governor's Criminal Justice Office, will spend $2 million in its first year. Currently, there are 11 border cams. Four more are planned. To date, Ray says that reports from virtual deputies have yielded four marijuana busts, totaling more than 1,500 pounds, and 30 incidents when illegal crossers were repelled. Is this a good use of taxpayer dollars to secure the border? By any calculation, this program has been a waste of money. State Senator Elliot Chapley, a Democrat from El Paso, says border security should be the business of the Border Patrol, which accomplishes the task with agents on the ground and its own surveillance and sensor technology. Of the blue servo cameras, Shapley concludes, What these cameras do is they invite extremists to participate in virtual immigrant hunts. The people who stand virtual watch on the border don't see it that way. Bob Parker is a former Coast Guardsman who used to chase drug boats for a living. He monitors a different camera on a different website run by an organization called American Border Patrol. 
basically, you know, all we're doing is sitting at your house. I'm in Texas between Austin and San Antonio watching the Arizona and New Mexico border. And if they want to call that being a vigilante for reporting people illegally crossing the border, then so be it. Officially, the U.S. Border Patrol has no comment about the placement of surveillance cameras on private property along the International River. Privately, a veteran agent in South Texas said he's dubious of the program. They have intelligence that drug smugglers have logged on and used the cameras to spot when the Border Patrol is not in an area so the smugglers can quickly move a load across. Virtual deputies may dutifully report the crime, he says, but the traffickers are gone by the time the Border Patrol arrives. It's a good idea on paper, the senior Border Patrol agent says, but if you have 40,000 good guys looking at it, they're not as clever as two bad guys. John Burnett, NPR News, Austin. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Michelle Norris. And this is All Tech Considered. Today's segment strikes close to my heart, or I should say close to my home, because at home we have an old computer. We don't use it, and it's taking up a lot of space, far too much space. We'd love to donate it, and we haven't, for one reason. We don't have a clue how to eradicate all that personal information that's still on the hard drive. This seemed like a perfect task for our tech advisor, Omar Gayaga of the Austrian American Statesman. Hey, Omar. Hey, how are you doing today, Michelle? Now, I know I'm not the only one who's in this situation. Have you had this kind of problem before? I have. You know, I've been through quite a few hard drives over the years, and it's not always easy to figure out what to do with it, especially when an old one fails or when you upgrade to a new one. Uh, Your data's still on there. Even if you delete the files or reformat the drive, uh, there's always ways to recover it if somebody really sneaky wants to get in there and do that. Uh, These kinds of things happen all the time. Our reporter, Sky Road, has tracked down a couple that's facing hard drive issues. Let's listen in. So the other week I was reading a blog called Deuce.com. It's written by a woman in Salt Lake City named Heather Armstrong. She's married to a guy named John Armstrong. They have a young daughter, another one on the way, two dogs, a nice house. And inside that house, Heather wrote, is a closet full of old computers. I think he brought a couple of computers, and then I had my own. Over the years, we have collected, oh, (laughs) laptop after laptop after laptop, plus, uh, plus an iMac. John had been holding on to the computers so he could take work off of them. But we can't even get on to the hard drives anymore because it doesn't work with the monitors and he's, we've just waited too long and the technology has gotten ahead of us. The Armstrongs want to recycle their computers, but Heather has some things on her old PC that she'd rather not have other people see. It was the computer that I was using when he and I started instant messaging each other every night. And, oh dear, how embarrassing that would be if anyone were to find those. John Armstrong admits he's a little paranoid about handing his old computers over to a recycling center. I definitely don't trust them with the hard drive. I don't trust that they'll do anything to ensure that my data is erased. John knows how to reformat the old Macintosh computers, but he's not as familiar with the PCs. He's going to try removing the hard drives before recycling, but if he can't... I will drill into the drives and just wreak havoc with my drill bit. Just get the big old drill bit and just go in and destroy the drive inside the computer. 
That's John Armstrong talking to our reporter, Sky Road. And we're going to go back to Sky in a little bit. But first, I want to follow up with our tech expert, Omar Gayaga. Omar, I feel for Heather and John. When I thought about doing this, I first went to the web to get advice. I went to the Apple store. I went to Best Buy. Everyone seemed to suggest that they'd love to help me, but they'd acknowledge that this is not easy to do. The sentiment was summed up in a web posting I found that said, the most secure way to safeguard your privacy is to remove the hard drive from the laptop and apply a large Hammer. It sounds like John Armstrong found much the same thing when he talked about picking up his drill bit. So if you don't go to your toolbox to, to try to solve this problem, what else should you do? Yeah, the old folk remedy used to be to t- take the platter out of there and run a magnet over it. That, that at least scrambles the data around. Uh, well, it really depends on how sensitive your data is and how far you're willing to go to protect it. Uh, you can, as they said in the report, format the disk in Windows, Mac OS, or Linux, but that doesn't always erase what's on it unless you pick a secure method of formatting. Uh, on Mac OS, for instance, there's an option to do a 35-pass erase, and what that does is it goes through the hard drive and erases it 35 times over, overwriting that data. Uh, there's also software on the market uh, with names like Wipe Drive and Drive Erase Pro, and their sole purpose is to clear what's on your data completely and ensure your privacy. Okay, that's what they say you know, on the box there, that they're going to clear all your data, but does the software actually work? Right. Well, I looked at reviews of these products um, on sites like Amazon.com where people have bought them and used them. And uh, in most cases, it does do what it says it's going to do. But there's always a problem when you're dealing with older hard drives that may have uh, problems or disk errors or physical damage on them. So not everyone who reviewed the products had a stress-free experience. Uh, One person on Amazon complained that instead of erasing a data drive, the uh, software accidentally wiped out their whole operating system. Oh, boy. It sounds like software is not necessarily a reliable option. Any other products worth looking into? Well, one product that I found that was interesting is called the Weeb Tech Drive Eraser. That's E-Razer, R-A-Z-E-R. It's a small box that plugs directly into a hard drive and wipes the data, and you don't have to deal with any software. Uh, if you have an older computer that no longer works, for instance, and you want to clear the hard drive inside before you donate or recycle the computer, it's a good option. Uh, it doesn't require any computer, and there are adapters that plug into virtually any kind of hard drive, even the smaller notebook drives. Uh, The eraser runs about $100 to $200, depending on what model and adapters you buy, but it works with virtually anything. Oh, my goodness. It sounds like I should rent an Abrams tank or something and just run over it. You know, the drill is sounding better and better (laughs) the more we talk about it. All right. Let's say that you've taken the plunge. You either use the software or you purchase the tech drive eraser, and and it happened to work. And at this point, you're ready to recycle that old computer. We're going to go back to our reporter, Sky Road, to find out what happens to those old computers. If you're in Los Angeles, your old computer might end up at direct computer disposal. It calls itself one of the top five computer recyclers in California, and it takes in more than three and a half million pounds of e-waste a month. Some of that comes from companies like Google, Dell, U.S. Bank, and Cal National Bank. First, the computer dismantlers take apart the CPUs, the plastic, the memory chips, the power supplies. Each component gets put in a bin, and the hard drives go to Carlos Salgado. He says he wipes 300 to 500 hard drives a week. We'll take it here to our wiping station, We'll run a program uh, such as like wipe drive. And in this program right here, we have the options to delete the information from here. Once it's wiped, it'll test it for us to make sure, you know, it's consistent, it works. Every hard drive that we receive, obviously, in a facility, we have a uh, software that we use. Uh, It's used by the Department of Defense. Leon Avadikian handles sales and marketing for the company. So we do a complete wiping of the hard drives. It brings everything down to zeros. And at the end of the day, we take the hard drives and we run them through a shredding machine. Avadikian says the shredded computer parts are all sold to downstream vendors. 
He also admits that not every recycling company shreds the hard drives it collects. Some send computer parts to landfills or resell them or ship them overseas. It's, it's a very, very big industry. And unfortunately, some recyclers out there try to find the easy way out for the quick cash, we call it. But that's their type of business. But we do it everything in an environmental safe way. So nervous hard drive owners, take note. You can actually watch your hard drive being wiped in real time on Direct Computer Disposal's website. For NPR News, I'm Sky Road. And for all our listeners that are eager to say good riddance to their computers, Omar, where should they go if they want more information? Well, there's lots of options for erasing a hard drive, uh, whether it be software or hardware, uh, and I'm going to post links to a lot of that information on the All Tech Considered blog at npr.org slash alltech. We'll help you make sure nobody gets that credit card information or gets to your private emails. Or those love letters that the Armstrongs were talking about. Thank you, Omar. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Omar Gallaga is with us most Mondays. He also writes and blogs for the Austin American Statesman. This is NPR, National Public Radio. A different sort of economic stimulus is coming to the United States from Asia. It comes in the form of Chinese tourists, real estate tourists. They're lured here by a housing market that's gone belly up. A group of 40 Chinese shoppers came to the U.S. this week in search of foreclosed properties and other housing bargains. NPR's Anthony Kuhn talked with a couple of the tour group's members and filed this report from Beijing. Business is good with Beijing-based lawyer, 45-year-old Yin Guohua. His practice covers trade, finance, and real estate, and debt default cases have been keeping him busy lately. So busy, he can barely find time to be interviewed over a cup of coffee, much less go off for two weeks of home hunting in the U.S., but he says it's a good time to go shopping. Nobody's certain if U.S. property prices have bottomed out yet, but prices are definitely lower than in recent years, and in general, it's a good opportunity. It's possible that prices may drop further, but people invest partly based on their needs, and I have a need for this kind of home. Yin's law firm is getting more American clients. He and his wife are considering sending their three-year-old son to school in the U.S. later. And besides, Yin's got the money. He says he's looking for a nice neighborhood not far from the city center, probably in New York or Los Angeles. I'm looking for a home in the $500,000 range. But if the quality is really good, I can go higher. If it's good value for the money, I'll consider it. If anyone asks Yin if he'd like a mortgage with his new home, he'll probably say no thanks and just pay it all at once in cash. A half a million dollars is a lot in a country that still has hundreds of millions of rural poor, but compared to home prices in China's top cities, it's not so bad. In Beijing or Shanghai, it's really not expensive at all. Vincent Mo is the founder of China's leading real estate website, SoFun.com, which is organizing the house hunters' tour. In Beijing and Shanghai, probably you need to start with a half million U.S. dollar to buy a good area, good you know, you know, apartment here. If you are going to buy a house or something, you probably need to have you know, two million to five million U.S. dollars. Moore got around 400 applications for the 40 slots on the first group, which includes quite a few real estate professionals. They'll be bargain hunting and sightseeing in New York, Boston, Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Moore says that officials from Australia, Singapore, and Spain have recently contacted SoFun.com and expressed interest, too. They would like to see similar groups SoFun.com can organize to 
to do some shopping tours. It's only in the past decade that large numbers of Chinese have saved up enough money to start buying cars and homes. The government helped things along by privatizing a lot of its housing stock a decade ago. Lawyer Yin says he already owns three homes. Most Chinese people share a traditional notion. They see home ownership as very important and a key indicator of success in life. China's government and institutional investors have so far been wary about buying up distressed U.S. assets, but there are still plenty of reasons for newly wealthy Chinese citizens to invest in the U.S. Despite the current downturn, many Chinese investors consider the U.S. real estate market as more mature and standardized than their own. Business and educational ties between the two countries are flourishing. And with China's currency strong against the dollar, there may be some bargains that are just too good to pass up. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. Those Chinese house hunters do have some possible bargains. Falling home prices have created the most affordable housing market in at least five years. That's according to the National Association of Home Builders. More than 60 percent of recently sold homes were classified as affordable. Which means the average family is spending 28% of its income or less to buy the house. But the Chinese visitors should be aware of the regional differences. New York City is currently the least affordable city in the country, and the most affordable city is Indianapolis, Indiana, for the 14th consecutive quarter. It's morning edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. Most of the stimulus money flowing from Washington is intended to create jobs or preserve them, but some of the money, 198 million dollars to be precise, will be used to pay an old debt. It goes to Filipino veterans of World War II. They helped the United States defeat Japan in the Pacific. The Filipino fighters never got the money that America promised them, and as NPR's Richard Gonzalez reports, some of them clearly need it now. The men who can tell stories of fighting hand to hand against the Japanese in the jungles of their native Philippines can still be found in rundown and dilapidated single occupancy hotel rooms. They are men like 85-year-old Faustino Abago. His room in a San Francisco tenement carries a strong odor of mold and mildew. Many of Abago's teeth are missing, and he struggles to tell his story. It's very hard to explain. That is until he opens his shirt and points to a massive scar covering most of his chest. Chest nil of the hand grenade of the uh, Japanese army. So that was shrapnel from a Japanese grenade. Japanese army. That I am claiming my pension. This says Abago is why I'm claiming my pension. Abago is one of more than 200,000 Filipinos who, during World War II, pledged loyalty to the United States. They were made U.S. citizens and promised veterans' benefits for fighting alongside American soldiers. But in 1946, President Harry Truman signed a law stripping the Filipinos of their citizenship and reversing the promise of benefits. Over the years, they pressed their claims, and some regained their citizenship. 
Finally, this year, in President Obama's economic stimulus package, there's money for the old Filipino fighters. $15,000 for U.S. citizens, $9,000 for non-citizens. I will just have to say thank you for those who ever passed the bill. Pedro Tabor is one of the Filipino vets and a member of the American Legion. He's at a party to celebrate the news. Because we had been expecting this for more than 62 years until now. I hope it will really come. But the one-time payment is in lieu of a monthly pension and survivor's benefits. It also releases the government from any future claims. It's all getting mixed reviews in the Filipino-American community. Well, I call it bittersweet victory. <laughs> Lourdes Tansinko, an attorney who represents the veterans, says she's happy because in an ailing economy, $198 million is real money, and it will help the surviving veterans. But at the same time, I feel bitter also because I think of the veterans who just passed away last week or during the last years that I, we've been here. They've been hoping for this to happen, to be recognized, but there's nothing, nothing in the stimulus package that would benefit them. There is some criticism that compensation, even if justified, has no place in a bill designed to create jobs. But to the Filipino vets, it represents long overdue recognition. You still remember how to march, right? In San Francisco last week, about two dozen of the old veterans lined up behind an ROTC color guard. They gather each year to remember the day Truman stripped them of their benefits. But this year, it was more of a celebration. The old men, all in their 80s and 90s, struggled to keep up, but they kept marching. Well, this is a victory for them because it's a very historic occasion. Rudy Assertion is a member of the American Legion and longtime veteran supporter. Because after 63 years of fighting for their honor and their dignity to be restored, finally President Obama signed a law that restored their honor and dignity. Assertion says the money probably isn't enough. But then he asks, how do you compensate a soldier who gave the best years of his life? Richard Gonzalez, NPR News, San Francisco.